0: here at church and if you didn't know we are about three weeks four weeks deep in a series called the word of god and following on from what the video said what we are looking at today is how it is that we might look at scripture and not see merely words on a page but see wonders and i have one point to argue from the word of god this morning and it's this that we are called to think deeply on scripture in order to see the glory of god we are called to think deeply on Scripture to see the glory of God. But I also want to put to you that I think modern life is set up to work directly against this. This probably struck me particularly on one morning when um, I was catching a bus into the city from the hills. We'd stayed over at my wife's mum's place and, so, and we'd only driven one car there so I needed to catch a bus in to get to work here on time. And so I was on the 6.30 bus with all the city commuters and um, if you don't know, I, I have one of these things, which is called a dumb phone. Fun fact, it turns out the only two types of people who buy this are old people who are about to leave this world. It's got a, it's got a little button on the back that's uh, what you might call like a panic button. And uh, I kid you not, if you activate it, when you hit this switch, it will text message you your kind of nearest of kin. And it just says, SOS need help. So if you've fallen, you can't get up, it does that. That's one group of people that buy it. The other one is drug dealers. And so uh, that's a fun fact for you. But, um, but another fun fact is that, uh, that on the bus, having one of these can give you a very different experience of the city commute. As I was kind of on the bus, because I had nothing really to look at, I was just kind of looking around, and I found that I was in no danger of making awkward eye contact with anyone. Because out of a whole bus, as you kind of look down the length of it, Pretty much everyone I saw there had eyes fixed on some kind of a device. The guy nearest to me in front of me, for the entire hour-long journey into the city, was flicking... I couldn't, I couldn't tell exactly what it was, whether it was kind of memes or... Sh- it, was, it was short videos, but flicking through them constantly all the way through to the city. I thought... Like, he looked, you know, dressed in a suit and whatever, so he's heading to some kind of job that involved, I'm guessing, some kind of knowledge work. And I couldn't help but think, I was like, I wonder... I wonder how he feels now for the start of his day. I feel like after an hour of flicking through like 15-second videos, your mind must just be frazzled. You must feel at least in some way kind of on edge, about to start a, a day at work where you're going to need to concentrate for long periods of time to get stuff done. And it was interesting, as I thought about that, it struck me also that I'm not the only person who's been thinking about these things. I listened to an interview recently with a guy called Tristan Harris. Not Tristan, Tristan, whatever, take it up with him. But, uh, but he, he's, he's been called the conscience of Silicon Valley. And his, his big push is that at present, there is an attention war going on that we're caught in the middle of. And the big players in the game are Facebook, Google and Apple. And each of them are trying to, as much as possible, get you to stay on their platform for as long as possible. That's what their, their profitability models are built upon, is getting you to stay on, on their platform for as long as possible. And he says, but the one question no one is asking is, is this good for the user? We've got teams of psychologists and strategists and, and, and engineers who are thinking how it is they can get you to engage with your phone, how they can reduce friction, all these kind of things, how you can get you on the platform for as long as possible. But no one's saying, is this good? They worked out that a push notification will get you to engage with your phone first thing in the morning. But no one's asking, is that the best way to start the day? And so his thing is saying, look, when when you build a city, you would ask the civil engineers, you'd say, how do we build a livable city? Not how do we build out as much of the the land that we have as possible, but how do you build a city where people can live and thrive? And that's going to mean some inefficiencies like parks and things like that. He says, no one's asking that of this digital city that we spend a lot of our lives on. Now look, everybody knows it. Everybody feels somewhat vaguely guilty about it. But my point is not to draw your attention to that. I just want to draw your attention to one thing. If it is the case that in order to to engage with the Word of God, we need to think deeply in order to see the glory of God, then the amount of time that we spend on these things is not helping us toward that end is not in any way helping us toward that end. See, God wrote a book, the Bible. As we saw in the first week, this is a library of divine and human writings that tell a unified story that points to Jesus. And he designed this book carefully and skillfully and artfully. It is an incredible literary work. But the way that God has designed us to get the deepest treasures and rewards out of it is to think and focus and meditate deeply on these words. And that is the exact opposite of what our smartphones teach us to do. It's the exact opposite of the way that we engage with this thing. The way that you get the most out of scripture is to have this silent flat page in front of you where you stare at these words and consider and think and go over and over and over. But the way you engage with the device is almost, it harasses you constantly. In fact, you have to learn the discipline of of giving it a safe distance so that you can engage with it happily. It's the, it's the opposite. The rewards of the Bible are actually slow and kind of slow-yielding, and yet over the long term, re, uh, re, rich rewards. And yet the rewards that we kind of get from our smart devices are instant and gratifying, but over the long term, leave us feeling either uneasy or a little empty. Think about it like this. This is a more serious issue than smartphones. The amount of kids that are taking up scooter riding these days... It's out of control, and it's eating, in, it's eating into skateboarding's market share, and it's a big issue, but we won't get all the way through it. But the reason, the reason it's happening, there's a really clear and obvious reason as to why scooters are kind of becoming more popular at skate parks than skateboards, even though they're called skate parks. You don't go to a scoot park. We'll <laughs> leave it alone for now. But there is one very clear reason for it. If you were to map as a graph effort on this axis and kind of you know, tricks or skills or whatever on this one. Running a scooter with very little effort, you can pick up a bunch of tricks straight away. But skateboarding kind of takes a a long time. It's a lot of like getting a board in the shins and all this kind of stuff before you get anything that you can show for it. But over the long term, the possibilities kind of multiply and it gets, you know, bigger and better. Whereas with with scooting, you kind of learn a bunch of tricks and then it sort of tapers off pretty quickly. The reason one is becoming more popular than the other is because one with very little investment, will yield a lot straight away. But over the long term, not much. That's just my opinion. And yet the other will, over the long term, yield more. And I think it's the same with Scripture. The reason we are finding it hard to maintain a habit that Christians have maintained for hundreds of years is because I think the way that we interact with the world around us is teaching us, coaching us, leading us towards instantly gratifying things. The idea of long concentration and thinking and deep meditation are are, are skills or disciplines that are evaporating. And with it, a life-giving habit of reading Scripture day in and day out, one that has brought life to Christians over many centuries as they meditate deeply on Scripture and see the riches that are in there, and they see and behold the glory of God. It's a discipline that I think for our generation we will have to fight for like no other has. And not because technology is evil or wicked, it's just the practicality of modern living that it's a discipline that we'd have to learn, and it's going to need a deep conviction that this is worth it in order to see it happen. So I'm going to pray that as we dig into Psalm 1, that's exactly what God would be teaching us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you wrote a book, you've given us your word, that we might think and meditate deeply on it, and that through it, by your Holy Spirit, you reveal yourself. That we read a book, not as we'd read other books, but we read to meet you and to know you, to know your will for our lives, your grace and your love toward us in Christ Jesus, the one you sent to die for our sin. Father, we pray that you would breathe life into this church, that we would have a deep conviction and desire to meet with you daily in your word and to draw from it deep and rich treasures that we might be, as it says in Psalm 1, like a tree planted by streams of water. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, Psalm 1 kicks off in this way. Psalm 1, sentence 1, we read this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. That yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the first of 150 Psalms. So, The Psalms is the, is the biggest book in the Bible. That's why when you you flip it open basically in the middle, you're probably going to land on a psalm. And this is the first one, and the way to think about Psalm 1 is it's kind of like when you, when you go to a ride at a theme park, there's a little statue out the front that kind of has a, a handout and says, you must be this high to enter. Psalm 1 is kind of like that. It's saying, this is what you've got to be like in order to get the most out of this book of 150 Psalms that you're about to dive into. This is the way to get the most out of it. And what does it say? There are really two things, two characteristics to the person who is going to get the richest treasures out of these 150 Psalms. The first is this, that you would delight in the law of the Lord, and the second is that you would meditate on it day and night. It's just those two things. That your delight is in the law of the Lord, and you meditate on it day and night. The first one, this idea of delighting in the law of the Lord, is the sense that you see God's Word as the ultimate authority. As the place where life and meaning and purpose and identity are found. That this is the answer, the capital T truth. This is where it's at. Now you might be thinking, why does it say here that his delight is in the law of the Lord? Is it, I mean, there's only a fraction of Scripture or a part of Scripture that's actually what you'd describe as law. Do this, don't do that, that sort of thing. Why is he calling it the law of the Lord? We will see this pattern throughout the whole book of the Psalms that the, the psalmist will use a bunch of different terms for the word of God. Namely because they talk about it so much and they're good artists so they realize if you just say the same thing over and over again it loses meaning. So you hear things like the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, uh, the, the, the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, all these different terms that mean the same thing. And it's kind of like, I think, I think I've think i got this right going back to uni days for any word nerds out there. I think we'd call this is a metonym. If anyone can confirm. The idea is that you, a part of something represents the whole so for example, if you say, I just, I just bought a new set of wheels, well that could mean you actually mean literally wheels, but oftentimes it means the whole car, right? You refer to your car as your wheels. So a part represents the whole. And here he talks about the law of the Lord, even though it's part of scripture, it represents the whole, the precepts, the statues, you hear all kinds of things. And so here he's talking about the word of God and he says, the, the one who delights in the law of the Lord also doesn't do something else. There are two things that you can't do at the same time. It's one or the other. They're mutually exclusive. It says, If you delight in the law of the Lord, then you walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Every worldview that rejects Jesus' Lord, the Bible says, is wicked. has gone off track. Is wrong. And it says you can't love... Two worldviews at the same time that are diverging completely. He says, if you're going to get the most out of these Psalms, you need to be the person who delights in the law of the Lord. You believe this is the ultimate authority. You don't walk, stand, or sit with any other worldview. You believe that this is the one. It's not just another authority among many. It's not just another ingredient at the, the grand spiritual buffet. This is the one. The Word of God is where everything is found, where life is found. When you ask questions of what I want to do with my life or my money or my relationships or whatever it is, this is where you turn. Your delight is in this. You know that joy and happiness is found here. That This is where the journey is at. And that's why what he says next makes sense. If you're the kind of person whose delight is in the Word of God, you believe that this is God's very Word that He breathed out for us to know and understand Him, then he says, blessed is the one who meditates on it day and night. Why day and night? Because that pretty much covers it. <laughs> That's about all the time there is. It says the one who delights in the word of God meditates on it day and night. And meditation here, the word meditate, is different to an Eastern understanding of meditation. You may have noticed that often Buddhist statues will symbolize someone whose eyes are closed. And often because the purpose of meditation is to move away from desire that brings pain and difficulty and suffering, and to look inside the self to kind of suppress desire to, to, to reach peace and an internal peace. This is the, really the opposite of what the kind of, of the kind of meditation is talking about here. This is talking about open-eyed, focused, deep, concentrated thought on a particular object, the Word of God saying here the purpose of meditation is to open your eyes, to read God's Word, and to increase your desire, your delight in Him. It's to to, to look carefully into this thing. And notice what the author says next. He says, if this is what you like, if you delight in the Word of God, you reject all others, this is the one place you are looking for, for joy and meaning in life. And he says, when you meditate on it day and night, look what happens. He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He's saying here, it's describing someone who's flourishing. The idea of a tree planted by a stream is a tree that has deep roots and it has all the fuel it needs to grow strong a tree that is going to last the ages, hundreds of years. It's, a, it's this idea of strength, of, of stability, of certainty. With it, there's this idea of abundance and fruitfulness. Like the image that it even draws to mind is kind of an abundant image, a tree by a stream bearing fruit. It says if you meditate on God's Word day and night, if you delight in His Word, you become like this. That becomes a, 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 a metaphor for how it is that you will be. But why is that? Why do those two things go together? What's the connection there? Why is it that if you delight in God's word and meditate on it day and night—that is, as, as much as you possibly can—why is it that then you'll be like a tree planted by a stream? So reading the Bible daily is what people have called a habit of grace, and it's important that we understand what this means and what it doesn't. The idea of like a, of a habit of grace is not that this is the means by which you find right relationship with God. That That is not the case. That it it's clear in Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there is one way to be right with God, and that no amount of Bible reading can, can get you there. That is that in sin, God's anger was pointed directly at us, and, and our Bible reading is not enough to turn away His anger. It would be like throwing tissue paper at a flamethrower. It will do nothing. There is one way to be right before God, and it's by Jesus' blood and death on our behalf. That is how you come, to be right with God. That is grace. It's through Christ and Christ alone. And the place of Bible reading in the Christian life is not to earn your way to God. But more than that, it's also not the thing that keeps you a Christian. So it's not like Jesus kind of did all the work to get you saved, but now that you're on the boat, you just better hold on tight through the storm. Now it's up to you. Jesus did all the hard work. He kind of got your ticket punched, and now you're on the boat. But Bible reading is kind of the way that you hold on to being a Christian. It's not that either. We believe from Scripture that it's from grace from first to last, that you were given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the final inheritance, and that never changes. So it's grace all the way. So saying that reading the Bible is a habit of grace doesn't have anything to do with your standing before God. So what is the motivation? If it's not to get saved or to stay saved, why do Christians read Scripture? A habit of grace is kind of like this. It is a means through which God opens our eyes to see the grace that we have in Jesus. The easiest way to understand it is like this. Consider the sun. Nothing that you do in your life can change or impact the reality of the sun. No matter how closed your eyes are to it, you cannot change the fact that its light brings life on earth and its light and heat bear upon the world constantly. Right? It is constant. But your experience of it can change depending on how open or closed your eyes are. Correct? It doesn't change that the sun is actually there or that its light is shining upon you. But it will change your experience. See, grace is like that. God's saving grace toward us, to those who believe in Jesus, is constant and unchanging and irreversible. But your experience of it, your eyes can be more or less closed to that reality. And that's the place of daily Bible reading. Can you be a Christian and not read the Bible? Of course. Can you walk around with your eyes closed all the time? Definitely. But why would you want to? I mean, would you want to stumble about and nearly get hit by a car and constantly rely on people to help you out and walk into danger unnecessarily? That's the life of the Christian walking by without the Word of God to constantly open our eyes to His glory and goodness and grace. That's the place of reading Scripture in the life of a Christian. It's not the means by which we get saved. Our standing before God is through Christ alone. But it opens our eyes to the realities that are there. It helps us live out the fullness of what Christ has already done for us. To meditate on it day and night is to become like a tree planted by a stream. I think there's one more reason that it's significant and why it is that reading the Scripture as much as we can bears fruit in our life. I saw a a clip from... um, like kind of like a motivational speaker, was, like years and years ago. And he was on like a, um, like a classic sort of, I mean, not to rail on this stuff or whatever, but I will a little bit. But he um, the, the, was going on one of those kind of classic sort of motivational speech things. I, think, I feel like I've heard it in different circles of kind of like of proximity power. The idea of like you are the average of your five nearest friends. Like you've heard that kind of thing, right? That um, you've you got to be careful about who the people are around you, who influence you, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and so the idea was kind of like that, yeah, You make sure that the five nearest people to you are kind of high-achieving, successful people if you want to be a high-achieving, successful person. And so look, I kind of heard it and dismissed it a little bit as, you know, motivational talk. But then I started to think, well, what about that in the cosmic sense? A guy called Francis Scougal once wrote, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love you catch that? The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. If you love darkness, that darkness will cover your whole life. If you love money, greed will consume your life and the relationships and the things around you. If you love what is not excellent, that will impact your soul and your life. And isn't that the case if you love what is good and right? If you love the God of the universe... There is no one or thing more excellent than He in all creation. And if you love God and meditate on His Word day and night, will it not bring life and light to your soul? Will that not start to bear out in every area and corner and relationship in your life as well? I feel like this has been my experience of reading Scripture through and through. If Mel and I find ourselves in a season where we are just inexplicably irritable with one another, if you've been married for any amount of time, you know one of those seasons where you just—you kind of almost like, you're like two gears that just aren't articulating properly. We're just kind of you're at each other. And it's almost a one-for-one one thing that as we stop and think, how are we going in terms of just reading God's Word day in and day out, that as much as we are, that we are not irritable, and as much as we aren't, that we just find ourselves kind of at each other. It's like our souls become sort of detuned and, just, and fall out of sync. We get narky and irritable. Even this week, I've been trying to wake up at the same time this day to get into God's word to have clear, undistracted time in it, and I feel it affect my mood. Even yesterday, I just, feel like, you know, I, just I feel like I'm in a good mood. And it was for no, there was no particular change in the circumstances. And I think it was partly, as God's word does its, its work imperceptibly, as we sit under it day in and day out, that it does something to us. It makes us more and more like this tree planted by a stream as we meditate on His Word. In fact, I would say this. Why not make it an experiment? If you are worried about something or experiencing significant doubt, there is issues in a significant relationship or marriage or whatever it is, why not make this resolution? Why not say, look, just for a week, just for a week, I'm just going to, for one week, just try me in God's Word as much as I can and see if I feel the exact same way in a week's time. And if I do, then great, we'll take the next steps. There's something more significant here that needs to get resolved. But why not try that as an experiment and see what happens? My suspicion is that many of the things that we fret about would evaporate with just deep time in God's Word. Now don't get me wrong, many things wouldn't. There are things that take more significant work than that. But I suspect, maybe it's your experience, but it certainly has been for mine, that many of the daily or weekly things that draw my mind to them and affect my mood often evaporate with just good time sitting before the creator of the universe. That it brings a perspective and understanding of life and the world where it sets things to right. See, it is the case that we are called to think deeply, to meditate on God's word day and night. And in order to do this, because it's easier said than done, in order to do this, I think it means a couple of things. And the first one is this. To think deeply on God's word means getting away from distraction. Thinking long and deep on a passage of writing does not come naturally to us. There's a guy called Nicholas Carr who's a tech and business writer, and he wrote a book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. It was a finalist for the 2011 Pulitzer in in general nonfiction. And he—it um, all started because he wrote—he wrote an article that was meant to be provocative. It's not quite accurate, but he—he he, um, he wrote an article entitled uh, "Is Google Making Us Stupid?" And obviously, just to to get a reaction. But the, the content of it was more this. His experience was that he found, uh, having worked you know on a computer and in Intech for a, you know a good decade or so, that he found that when he opened up a book he found himself interacting with the book in the same way that he'd interact with the web browser. He was constantly looking for, like his eyes were sort of darting around, he was looking to flick pages. He just felt kind of restless when he sat there in front of a book. And he's like, look, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not how I used to relate to books. I used to be able to sit there for hours and read them undistracted. He says something has changed. And so it moved him to write this book. And, and what he discovered in his research is that, that what sort of... Uh, interacting with smart devices or our computers does is it it helps us we get better at things like multitasking that is giving a little bit of attention to a lot of things but it doesn't help us focus on one particular thing over a long period of time and so he wrote this book about how it is that we might regain some of these disciplines see that is the exact kind of work that psalm one calls us to isn't it it says meditate on the lord god day and night That's focusing on one thing over a long period of time. That is the opposite to how we interact with a lot of the stuff around us and a lot of the technology around us. And so it's going to mean carving out clear, undistracted time to focus on God's Word, which is way harder now than it was 10 years ago or 10 years before that or 50 years ago, and you can keep going. Look, sin and the enemy has meant that reading Scripture has always been a difficult thing. But there are unique things about our context that make it hard to find undistracted time. C.S. Lewis, who wrote before any of this stuff was available, said this. He said, It comes at the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in simply shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. And so on all day. Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings and coming in out of the wind. This is how the day starts and maybe more so now than a few generations ago that that thoughts, to-dos, actions, emails, things are coming at us the moment we wake up. We are distracted from the moment we open our eyes. And yet we are called in order to draw what is most rich and precious out of Scripture to give focus, deep attention on the Word. And so it's going to mean, in whatever way, carving out undistracted time to sit there before the eternal Word of God and think deeply on it. It means things like thinking through how it is that we're going to do that. How it is that we might reduce friction. When you get up, it is so easy to get distracted by things. I find it all the time. Maybe it means something like having the same spot where you read the Word of God each day as a habit. And, and laying out what you need before you get there so you don't wake up and then you go to the fridge and then suddenly it's like 10 a.m. You're like, what, what just happened? We're so easily distracted. Maybe it means setting things up so that there's a good chance that you'll have undistracted time with God. But the other one is I think we need to slow down. Giving focused time to the Word means slowing down how we read. And I think one of the most helpful things for this often is to is to Journal i want to say journal, some of you might be thinking like, dear diary, Zach is so dreamy. And he, you know, whatever it is, right? That's not the kind of journaling I'm talking about. I mean, just having a, a piece of paper or a blank book, where as you read the word, you can reflect on it and write something. Because if your mind is anything like mine, you'll be reading something like Psalm 1, blessed is the man who, I wonder if there will ever be a boy born who could swim faster than a shark. And then you're off and your mind is gone. And it takes minutes to regain it and you get through about three seconds of reading then it's off again. Journaling is just, look, it's not a legal requirement from the Bible but it may be a helpful way just to attend to this principle of meditating deeply on the Word of God, to stay focused. We need to slow it down. Whatever it is that you need to do, whether it's highlighting, whether it's getting out something, whether it's only having a physical Bible rather than a digital one, whatever it is, you might be able to give focused time to sit and think on this. It may mean memorizing Scripture. You know, if you were to, you were to rewind back to sort of the 16th century, the, they wouldn't have been talking about the smartphone and what that's doing to, to reading Scripture or meditating on Scripture. It would have been the printing press. That was probably the most significant moment in changing how we interact with God's Word over even probably the, the two millennia since Jesus. And the reason for it was before that, if you wanted to think deeply on the Word of God, in a mostly illiterate society, there was one way to do it, and it was that you memorized it. There was someone in every church community or a few people who were literate and could read the Word of God, but most, if they wanted to think on it daily, either gathered with others who could read it or committed it to memory. And the human mind has an incredible capacity to memorize things, or at least it it did. And so now it's something that we rarely do. In fact, I think when I, when I first came to know Jesus, I spent way more time committing Scripture to memory than I do now. Because I have it with me, all around me. I can get access to it whenever I want. And that's, that's an awesome gift. But it's led me to be, I think, lazy around actually memorizing Scripture. Maybe that's the way that you'd be meditating on it day and night. When the psalmist says meditate on the word day and night, it doesn't literally mean that has to become your main occupation. That's impossible. There are other things that need to get done the idea is on being and meditating on it for as long and as much as possible. And day and night is, is the extent of how much we can meditate on it. To memorize scripture is to have scripture on your mind throughout the day. To be able to call it to mind when needed. That the Spirit might use it to convict our hearts and give us hope and meaning in life. But secondly, thinking deeply means asking deep questions. So firstly, it means getting away from distraction, being out of focus. But thinking deeply also means asking deep questions. And the first thing that we need to ask when we open our Bibles is, what is it that God is trying to say? This is His book that He has authored. It's not the case that we just open it and go, what does this mean for me right now? You think about it like this. There was a, you might have seen something like this floating around. But someone has um, obviously done up this little graphic to kind of explain something around perspective. There's two people. There's a number on the ground, one standing on one side, one on the other, and one says six, and the other says nine, and then it says, well, just because you're right doesn't mean that I'm wrong, and you just need to, you know, learn life from my side or whatever. So the idea of like, you know, there are multiple perspectives on one single thing, but then you may also have seen this. Someone else wrote this, (laughs) crossed it out and wrote this angry thing underneath. I am going to go through it. It says, but one of those people is wrong. Someone painted a six or a nine, and they need to back up and orient themselves and see if there are any other numbers to align with. Maybe there's a driveway or a building to face or something like that. And then it goes, then it really goes next level. People having an uninformed opinion about something they don't understand and proclaiming their opinion as being equally valid as facts is what is ruining the world. (laughs) So we just went from like, look, someone maybe just maybe chose the wrong illustration to make the point to like, no, this is actually what's ruining the world right now, right? This is, this is the problem. And then it kind of goes, like, goes on about it for however much longer. But look, there is, a, there is a point there. It is a poorly chosen sort of thing to illustrate the idea of perspective because it is the case if someone wrote something on the ground, there is an author behind that with an intention and it matters. So for example, if you're going scuba diving, and there is a number on your tank that represents the number of hours of oxygen you have, you don't be like, it could be a six or a nine, it's all a matter of perspective. You're like, no, no, if I'm down there for seven hours, do I die or do I not? Because this matters. Because it's written by an author with an intention who's trying to tell you something. You have this number of hours of oxygen. The Bible is written with an intention. Intention. It has an author who is trying to say something. It's not open to us to say, well, what does it mean for you? It might be different to me. We're trying to find out what is it that God is saying. And God has written it so that it's so simple that even kids can understand it, and yet it's so complicated and deep that, that PhDs can spend their life studying it. We need to ask the question, what is it trying to say? And that starts with the question of, who is this originally written to? We don't just dive into any text and think, what can I get out of this? Let me give you the classic story. David and Goliath. If you were here and just finding out about Christianity, you you may, you probably have even heard of this story anyway, even if you've never read the Bible. In sports, there's always talk of the the classic David and Goliath battle. Even my team, the Tigers this season, were called the giant killers early in the season, kind of referencing the idea that they're a small team with not a great roster that was destroying some of the top teams. But uh, it's a story that when we come to it, It's not a matter of just coming to this story and thinking, what does this mean for me? Because a modern reading of that story goes, aha, I get it. There's a story of a little guy beating a big guy. What that means is, uh, even though I might not look like I'm going to be a success, I can achieve my dreams and defeat giants, and God is with me to help me do that. Here's the problem. That book is an ancient text written to an ancient people originally. And for the ancient Israelites who are reading that story, as they hear the story of David, who is the king who was appointed by God to rescue them from their enemies, they don't number themselves with David. They think of themselves as the Israelites standing off on the side, too afraid to fight. And the moral of the story is that though Israel was cowardly and unwilling to, God stepped in and rescued them. And not only that, as you zoom out and consider its place in the context of the whole Bible story, we see that it leads us to Jesus, who is a king in the line of David, who when we could do nothing, could not save ourselves from our own sin. He stepped in and saved us. And when we approach in that way and ask, what is it that this is trying to say? We see that the meaning is far more vast than, how is this a moral story or parable for me today and my, my sort of goings on? We need to ask hard questions and wrestle with hard texts. It means that when we read Scripture we wrestle with texts that we don't immediately agree with. I don't know if you've been following along with the daily readings, but this week you saw that Moses was commanded to have 3,000 people killed because they had built a calf and an altar to a false god. Now you can breeze over that. That's not a casual moral story or a moral parable. That's something to wrestle with. Some texts are hard because they clash with our views of what is right and wrong. Other texts are hard because they're confusing or maybe clash with other parts of Scripture. But thinking deeply means asking deep questions. And instead of just breezing over it, thinking, yeah, what do I think about that? How do I reconcile that? A God of love, a God of judgment? How do I think deeply on these things? Thinking deeply on the Bible means asking hard questions and going deep. The other one is it might just mean asking a few good questions of each text four that I've found particularly helpful in approaching any text in the Bible is to ask these four things. What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about me? What does this mean that I should do? And who can I tell about this? The reason that it's helpful is it starts with God. Everything about modern life inclines us to look at the scripture, this eternal word written by God and ask, what does this mean for me? The problem is we are not the main character in the Bible. God is. You think about it like this. If you, and just being honest, whenever you see a photo, if you know that you are at that event or whatever it is, often who is the first person that you're looking for? You get our old school photos. What is the first face you're looking to see? It's yourself, right? I mean, you might be completely different to me. If so, I don't have that problem either. I don't really look for myself. But just in case there are some others out there who do it, it is a common habit. The most of the time we pick up a photo, who we're looking for is me. And oftentimes we approach the Bible the same way. We flip it open and we're like, where's the stuff about me? And oftentimes we're disappointed because we find out that actually the main character in this story is God. And He has designed it to reveal Himself to us. That actually the first question is, what does this say about who God is? And once I understand who He is, me, the creature who is made in His image, starts to understand myself in light of that. That's the first question. But then early to that, and we'll get into this more next week, that it's a word that changes our life. It means changing the way that we think or act. And it means telling people. Look, It may not be these four questions that you use as you approach Scripture, but either way, to think deeply, to meditate on the Word of God, means to ask deep questions. Now, after all this, you might just be feeling like, oh, I feel exhausted just hearing about, like reading the Word. The idea of actually doing it is just, it's a bridge too far. And so let me me boil it down to one very simple application. For anyone here who follows Jesus, who believes that this is the Word of God, who delights in the law of the Lord, why not just make it a resolution wherever you're at in terms of reading God's Word, that over the next week and then the week after that, just to meditate more. Wherever you're at, take that as a starting point and just say, next week I just want to increase it, just a bit. Now for you, if you're in God's Word every day and have a great just habit of being with God and meeting with Him and digging into His Word, well maybe it means at night reading something else or digging into a hard question that you've kind of put on the shelf for a long time. Maybe it means listening to some podcasts that will challenge you to think deeper. Or if you want one Spartan-level challenge, I was talking to a guy last week whose habit is to, um, he gets up at 3.30 in the morning. Like when he said he it, it was, it was being interviewed about, you know, his daily Bible reading habits, and he just kind of drifted over it. He yeah, sort of get up three or four mornings a week, get up at 3.30, and da, da, da. I was just like, I'm sorry, what? So afterwards, I went and spoke to him. I was like, so uh, just to, like we're talking about a.m., is that correct? He was like, yeah, yeah, so a few mornings a week, you get up at 3.30 a.m., He's like, it's, it's fine. He's like, a quick coffee and I've been getting, drinking this South American tea that helps me go with that. I was like, I, don't, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that come out of South America that will keep you up for that amount of time. Not all of them are tea. <laughs> uh, like, if, what is it that you're actually drinking to make this happen? Anyway, that works for him. That's not going to work for me. <laughs> but wherever you're at, where the, I mean, if you're doing that, then power to you, brother or sister. Well done. But, um, but for the rest of us, the regular humanity... Um, really the challenge is just to meditate more. Like if you haven't been in the Word of God for months and months and you feel like your spiritual life is dried up completely, then why not just make just five minutes a day? You don't have to go from like zero to a thousand. And the enemy will try and tell you that's a waste of time. But it's not, is it? If someone is true, if, if meditating on the law of the Lord day and night is what makes us like a tree planted by a stream, then like anything is good. Even just if it's just five minutes a day, just to start to get into the habit. If you were in a desert and you were absolutely perishing from thirst and someone offered you a glass of water, you wouldn't say, well, that's not going to do anything. I clearly need liters of hydration here. Don't even worry about it. You'd be like, of course you would go for it. And so if it is, if it's just five minutes a day, if life is that hectic, if you've got kids and your free time in the day is measured in seconds rather than minutes, then it will be hard to find undistracted time. But maybe it's just five minutes to get into the passage for the day, to be before the Word of God and to see what that does to your soul. Wherever you're at, why not just make it a resolution to meditate more? And then after the week after, think again, is there more space? Do I see it just bring more life to my my following of Jesus? And so on and so on. Why don't we encourage one another just to meditate more on the Word of God? If you haven't grabbed the daily Bible readings you need some structure for it, then grab them today. But if God's Word is true, then it's worth meditating more. But if all of this is seeming heavy and dry, just consider this. That God wrote a book. The God of the universe who created all things that spoke life into being communicates Himself through His Word. And you can meet with Him in His Word. You can see this all-powerful, almighty God, beyond human wisdom or control, unchanging and eternal, without beginning or end, a holy God of justice and yet a God of mercy and love and goodness. A book that changes lives, it changed my life completely and continues to because it's not just a book, there's a God behind that who is communicating himself to us. John Wesley was known as a man of one book, the Homo Unius and I would I'd pray that my kids would see me the same way. I'd pray that people would see us as a church community that way. There are many good books, but there is one that rules them all because it is the very Word of God. We know the Gospel, that we are forgiven in Jesus. Our relationship with God does not depend on our daily Bible reading habits or this or that or the other. There are not levels of Christianity. There are only sinners who need grace, and that's all of us. And So we're not called to stress about this. But I think if Psalm 1 is true, why would I want to miss out on that? Let's pray that God would help us to meditate more this week, that we might see life abundant flowing through our Christian lives. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are an infinite and loving God. You are the restorer of our souls. You haven't left us as orphans in the world, but you have given us your word to uphold us. And Father, we pray that in whatever way we can, that we would have it before us, that we would meditate on your word, that we would listen, that we'd hear, that we'd put it before our hearts and minds constantly, that we might be changed and transformed by it, that as we see you, we'd be changed and transformed by you, that we'd be overwhelmed and overcome by your grace and the hope that we have in you. And Father, we pray that all of this would be for the glory of your name. Amen.